dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, if you would please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Last week, we looked at reasons why Paul was not ashamed of the Lord, of the gospel, because the gospel reveals the power of God. This morning, in our section in 2 Timothy, we're going to look at just two verses, but they are rich. In fact, originally this section, uh, verses 6 through 14, we were planning to do over two weeks, and the more I studied it, the more I thought, man, verses 9 and 10 need their own message as Paul just examines the gospel, lifts up the gospel, this morning we are going to see, hopefully, wondrous things in the gospel. On the one hand, the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, to believe, and yet I think it can be deceptively simple. The Apostle Paul will spend chapter after chapter unpacking the gospel, looking at the gospel from different angles, and this morning we're going to see some more facets of the gospel. Um, if you think you fully understand and grasp the gospel, think again. The Apostle Paul looks at it and examines it and all the implications of it. And so this morning, we're going to study being saved and called by God. We're going to do it by asking four questions. Four questions to help us understand the gospel more fully. But before we do that, I just want to set the context. Let's read verses 6 through 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God, which is yours, through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now this section, verses 9 and 10, in some of your translations will be set off in poetic stanza. In, in the Greek text that I have, that's the way the translators have done it. It's a judgment call by, the, by those who put the text together. It seems as though Paul is citing a hymn or, or saying something poetic. Whatever it is, it's exalted prose. And it sits in this sandwich. On the one side, we saw last week, Paul commanding, exhorting Timothy to use his gifts to not be ashamed, but be willing to suffer. And then on the other side, Paul says it's the same gospel, it's the same truth we're about to study today that enables him to suffer. It enables him to endure. And then passing that baton to Timothy, telling Timothy, oh Timothy, guard the good deposit 
that has been entrusted to you. And next week, Pastor Daniel, God willing, will unpack and we'll have this entire section covered. And so this section on the gospel is sort of connecting the two thoughts. It powers and further fuels how do you suffer well? How do you not be ashamed? How, how, do, you, how do you become courageous? Well, you believe gospel truth. And, and how do you persevere to the end? And how do you guard the deposit? You, you believe gospel truth. So even though this section is in some senses doctrinal, it's very practical in Paul's application of it. The truths we study today are meant to encourage us both to be courageous, to persevere, to suffer well. All as we look at these two verses from the gospel. So let's dive in with the first of our four questions. What has God done for us? What has God done for us? And here, this is verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. What he's done for us, point A, he saved us from death. Point B, he called us to a holy calling. This is what God has done for us. If you, if you are in Christ Jesus here this morning, if you are one who has turned and looked in faith to the Savior, this is what God has done for you. First off, he has saved you. He has saved me. In this context, it's saving us from death. We're going to see a little later in the passage that he abolished death. And the death being spoken of is spiritual death. In the world we live in now, death still runs rampant. People die. People get sick. And yet ultimately, we are those who will never perish. If you are the Lord's, if you know the Lord, you will never perish. Not a hair on your head will perish. He saved us. And we can so quickly become bored of that. We can so quickly become um, complacent about that. And I just want to stop and encourage you to, to think about where you were headed before the Lord found you, where you were destined, the course you were living, the fruit it was bearing. All of us were children of wrath. All of us were headed for destruction. All of us were headed to judgment. And the Lord saved us. He rescued us. He delivered us. And not only that, he called us to a holy calling. The Lord called us. If, if, again, if you, are, if you are his child here today, you have been called by the Lord. You've been called to a calling. ESV, he called us to a holy calling. And I know some of your translations at this point will say with a holy calling. You could translate it both ways. It basically amounts to the same thing, though. I want you to get the privilege here. He saved us, but he called us. He called you by name. He drew you. He called you to himself, and he called you to something. He didn't just save you from sin's penalty, but he's given you the strength, as we've seen in the past passage, the power to break free of sin's control. Not only will you no longer be punished for sin, but now in the gospel, we have power to say no to sin. Now in the gospel, we have power to resist sin. We've been called to a holy calling. A, a parallel passage of this in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. It's an appropriate corresponding way of living, the gospel announces, 
to the way we were called. We were called by a holy God. We were set aside as his peculiar people, as his special people among all the earth. And that holy calling calls us to holy living. Or again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. And this is a point sometimes we can miss as well. Sometimes the gospel is presented in such a way that all people hear and all we communicate is you don't need to pay sin's penalty. That's true, amen and amen and amen. But as we saw in 1 Timothy, the grace of God, I'm sorry, Titus, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to renounce ungodliness. The gospel doesn't just remove sin's penalty. It, it trains us in the school of the gospel to overcome the power of sin in this life. That's, that's part of the gospel message as well. The gospel message announces, would you like to be forgiven of your sins? Would you like to be transformed so that you can grow in holiness? And would you like to be with the Lord for eternity in heaven? All of that is announced in the gospel. He's called us to a holy calling, and he saved us. And all of this, of course, then begs the question, point C, who, then, is the us in this passage? Who is the us? Well, let's just take a look here. Is he us everybody? Is he us all people? I don't think so. Let's start in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The us in this passage is believers. The us in this passage is Christians. And the blank here that I want you to fill in is the elect. And the reason why I want you to write that is because this passage deals with this teaching of a, the doctrine of election. J jump over to chapter 2, verse 10 to see that clearly. This is what Paul has in mind. Chapter 2, verse 10 of 2 Timothy. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That word elect means chosen. We elect someone to an office. They are appointed or chosen for an office. And who, who, Jesus, who Paul is talking about here are those for whom God has called. Those for whom, before eternity began, salvation was planned. And we're, and we're going to look at this. We're going to dive into this. This isn't, this isn't speaking about the gospel from the sense of the, of the world. There's two ways you can look at the gospel. There's probably more than two ways. But I'm going to imagine a door. And on one side of the door, it says, all are invited to enter. And that is true of the gospel. The gospel invites all. All are called. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. In fact, in, in John 6... Both sides of this are taught. In John chapter 6, the Lord says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So Jesus, on his word, says anyone who comes to him will not be turned away. 
Everyone is invited. No one will be turned away. This is a door that anyone who wants to go through can enter through. And yet, from another perspective, when you look at the gospel, and this is the perspective Paul is looking at in this passage, when you walk through that door and you look back at it, you see chosen before the foundation of the world. And there's there's a mystery here that I will not attempt to solve But to lay out the truth, on the one hand, it is absolutely biblically true that all are invited, all may come. No one will be turned away. No one will be prevented from coming to Christ. They want to come, they can. And yet, as we're going to see in this passage, on the other side of those, it is those who the Lord has chosen who will come. The elect, as he uses in the passage, um, chapter 2, verse 10. So, Let's, let's move on to, to the next question and, and, and see if, make this even a bit more difficult. Why then, why has God saved and called us? So I've just argued the us in this passage, those who share this holy calling, those who are saved, the Lord's chosen, the Lord's elect. Okay, why do I think that? So here's some further reasons why I think that. Because Paul speaks negatively and positively now about why the Lord has done this. I want you to see that. Verse 9, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So if you're asking the question, why has the Lord called me? Why has the Lord saved me? Well, let's look at it positively and negatively. I can tell you why why he didn't do it. He did not do it, not according to our works, not according to our deeds, not according to the things we would do or the choices we would make. If you're saved today, let me assure you, it has nothing to do with who you are. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. The Lord's salvation is not based upon, he's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't look across the sea of humanity and say, ooh, I like that one. Ooh, that one's got a lot of potential. Now, this is bad news for us. It's bad news for our self-image. We want to believe that we are worth saving. I've, I've heard people say that before, that Jesus wouldn't die for trash. That'd be a bad bargain. No, he died for worse than trash. You can at least burn trash and produce some heat. We were his enemies. Nothing good is in us. The poison of asps is under our tongue. Our feet are quick to shed violence. It is not because of our works. Go, go to Romans 9 where Paul makes the same point even more emphatically. And we, we kick against this because if this is true, then we're helpless. If this is true, then we are wholly dependent upon the mercy of the Lord. See, if there's something in me, intrinsically valuable in me, if there's something God saw in me, I like that. And no, what the Bible teaches is that's not the case at all. God saved me in spite of who I am, not because of it. And in Romans 9, making the same point, we'll pick it up in verses 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And the example here is how the Lord, before they were born, chose Jacob over Esau. And and what Paul says here explicitly is that when God made that choice, 
choose Jacob and reject Esau, it was not based upon anything he saw them doing. You see, everybody who's biblical has a doctrine of election. Everyone who's biblical has a doctrine of predestination. Sometimes you'll talk to people, they'll say, do you believe in predestination? Well, if you're biblical, you need to because it's a biblical term. The question really is, what do you believe about predestination? What do you believe about election? These are biblical terms. We, we don't get to not believe in them. But, of course, we have to define them. And so a popular way of, of trying to deal with these troublesome terms like election and predestination is to say, well, what God does is he looks down the corridor of time. And looking down the corridor of time, he sees who will and who will not respond to him, and those are the ones he chooses. Which, by the way, is a very strange definition of choose. If I, if I look to see who's going to choose me, and, oh, I choose you too. You know, that's a very interesting definition of choice. And the, setting aside the fact that that view has the problem of God learning something, I think that went through. God has to learn something at that point. It's simply excluded from this passage. This passage looks at the potential of what Jacob and Isaac and Jacob and Esau will do. Paul says that clearly. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, what is excluded from this choice is any factoring in of what Jacob and Esau will do. That's excluded. And, and Paul says the reason God did this was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. God did it this way especially to highlight his choice and not his response. God wanted to display choice, his choice. And so this is a hard teaching for us. It's a hard teaching for, for our self-value, but it's the biblical teaching. And I can show you it again and again and again. But back to 2 Timothy. Paul here says, You were saved and you were called. If you're a Christian, you were saved and you were called to a holy calling. And it's not because of your works. It's not because of anything you've done or anything the Lord sees that you will do. And we ask the question, well, does that mean it's arbitrary? Does that mean then God just sort of rolled some cosmic dice? Not at all. God's reasons are his reasons, and he just hasn't cared to share them fully with us. We know why he didn't choose us, but all Paul says repeatedly is so that his purpose, that his plan, that his will may continue. So God has a reason. God has a plan. God has a purpose. It's not arbitrary. But we know it's nothing to do with the distinctions between us. It's nothing to do with our goodness or badness. It has to do with his choice. Here it says this, but by his own purpose and grace. God's calling of you, God's saving of you, has nothing to do with anything good in you and everything to do with God's grace and everything to do with God's purpose and plan. The living God has a plan and a purpose, and he will accomplish it. He will accomplish all his good pleasure. And the amazing news is we are part of that plan. We are part of that purpose. And so he has poured us out on us grace, which he gave in us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, before we go any further, I want to anticipate an objection that often springs up at this point. There's, there's usually two lines of objections to this biblical teaching on, on election and predestination. And we'll deal with one of them this morning. And that is 
the cry of, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. And if by fair you mean just, no, it certainly is fair. I'll, I'll try to explain that in a minute. If by fair you mean, well, that's not doing the same thing for everybody. Well, then, okay, fair enough. That's not fair. But let me, let me give you an illustration that R.C. Sproul has repeatedly told that I've heard numerous times. I tried all weekend to try to improve upon it, but I simply couldn't. It's fantastic. R.C. Sproul is a Bible teacher taught at Westminster Seminary, and he tells a story of his first fall class that he taught. And, and he told the class in no uncertain terms that there would be three research papers due throughout the course of the semester and that no papers would be accepted late. A late paper was a zero. And he says, and he's got this gravelly voice, and he says, so we come up to September and the first paper's due and the class hands in the paper and lo and behold, there's five students sort of shaking and quaking there in front of the desk. And they say, oh, Professor Sproul, Professor Sproul, oh, please, please give us the weekend. You know, the car broke down and, and guests came in and the dog ate it. Just, just please give us, please give us an extension. And he said, okay, just don't let it happen again. And they just went out beaming, excited. Well, now comes October and the second paper is due. And the class hands in the paper. And now a group of 12 students is standing there, a little less concerned, but still kind of frightened. And they again plead with him to give them an extension, to which he says, okay. This time in his story, he says they literally break into spontaneous song, singing his praises. We love you, Prospero. Oh, yes, we do. Then comes the third and final paper in December. Now a group of 25 students sort of cavalierly walk by. Hey, Prospero, we'll have it in on Monday. No problem. See you. Have a good weekend. He goes, and I look up for my lectern, and I say, Johnson, you don't have your paper? No, no, Prospero, I'll have it in on Monday. No problem. It's zero. He goes, and do you know what that, that, those group of 25 students all said in one voice? That's not fair. He says, okay, Johnson, you want fair. As I recall, you were late on your second paper too, right? Yeah, zero. Who else wants fair? <laughs> we, we don't want justice. You don't want to argue with God on the terms of justice. You, you just simply, you don't. If, if we argue with God on the terms of justice, that's not fair. What would God give each and every one of us if he was fair in that sense? We'd go to hell now. Not only would we all go to hell, but it's not fair that we get a reprieve from hell. I mean, it's not fair that we get 70 years. That's unjust. Perfect justice demands the full penalty immediately. And so all of us get varying measures of grace. All of us get varying measures of divine forbearance. You don't want to argue with God on the terms of justice. In fact, justice and grace are mutually exclusive concepts. Paul in Romans makes it clear that the concept of what associates with works is debt, indebtedness, oughtness, whereas grace is completely opposed to that. So you can't speak of someone ought to be gracious. It's, 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 it's a violation of terms. Grace definitionally is voluntary. Grace definitionally is unobligated, is free. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by divine obligation. We're not saved by divine indebtedness. We are saved because the living God is a savior and he overflows with grace to us. 
And we dare not say when we learn that he pours more grace out on some than others. That's not fair. Because each and every one of us is a recipient of grace. Each and every one of us sitting here today, I can, just by the fact that you're here, I know that the Lord has not given you justice. You are a recipient of grace. Each and every one of us is sitting here today only because of grace. We don't want to argue with God on the basis of justice. We don't want to say that's not fair. We, we dare not do that. You don't want justice. You don't want your rights. You don't. Just trust me, you don't. Salvation is not based on our works. It's not based on what we deserve. It's based on his purpose and his grace. Paul says something very similar in the last book we studied, Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what has God done for us? He saved us. He called us. Why did God save and call us? Not because of our works, but according to his purpose and grace. Okay, let's, let's look at the gospel. Let's stretch it out some more. Is the gospel getting bigger, deeper? When did God save and call us? When did God save and call us? Well, first blank, in some senses, before time began. Look at the end of verse 9. But according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is that grace. Get this. This, is, this. this should be flabbergasting. This is the best news. Before God created, before God spoke and said, let there be anything, he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. And he made a choice to gift us grace in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. You're starting to see why Paul thinks this type of understanding of the gospel is going to give Timothy courage, give him power to persevere and to suffer when he understands that before God made the first Adam in time and space, God had already given him grace. God had already chosen him. God had already lavished upon him the riches of his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. This took place before time began. Again, another parallel passage. This, this is no unique teaching in Paul. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. The Ephesians class has already gone through this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So what, what Paul means by this grace that he gave us is every spiritual blessing. That's an awful lot of grace. It was given you in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's pretty clear. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, which is what he's saying over here. That we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to this holy calling. That's another way of saying that. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed on us in the beloved. Before time began, you were given every spiritual gift, every blessing, every grace in Christ Jesus. 
can, can you start to trust God and his love and his goodness now? Can you start to be more willing to step out in faith and be courageous and not be ashamed when you understand that before God made anything, he was thinking of you, he was thinking of me, he was gifting us grace. But not only is our salvation in some sense is rooted back to eternity past, but Paul says here in verse 10, there's a nowness to it, now through the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So there's a sense in which your salvation was secured. Your choice, God's choice of you, his gifting of grace to you, his, his pouring out of every spiritual blessing took place in eternity past, and yet in a very real sense, that salvation is accomplished now. Paul is, of course, speaking of the life and the death of Jesus Christ through his appearance. See, the Old Testament, up until Jesus' arrival, is saying he's coming, he's coming, and all these promises are being laid out that God will keep. He's coming, he's coming, and then he arrives. And those promises, and all that grace that was promised, is revealed in Christ Jesus. So it stretches back from eternity past, and it's operative now at work since the time of Jesus Christ. And if Paul wanted to go on further, it, it stretches to eternity future, to the second coming of Christ and the eternal state. You have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved from the wrath to come. Paul only looking at two of those elements here. His salvation spans all of eternity. Finally then, how has God saved and called us? How has he done it? We know what he's done. He's saved and called us. We know why, or at least we know why he hasn't, not because of our works, but because of his purpose. We know that this salvation stretches from eternity to eternity and is active and working now. How then has God saved and called us? Three points. First, it's given to us in Jesus Christ. We saw that earlier. It began with a choice, a free gracious choice of God the Father. He chose you. He chose me. He chose to call us, to save us. And that took place in eternity past, and he chose to give us grace. It was given to us in Christ Jesus. And that's the starting point of the salvation. The Father has a plan to glorify the Son. And he gives the Son a love gift, if you will, of a redeemed humanity on the condition that the Son will redeem them. And so the Son assents to the Father's will. He comes to earth. And so point B, this salvation then is manifested to us in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And here Paul now looks at the means, how this is accomplished. And Jesus' coming made manifest this grace. He revealed it. He shed light on it in two ways. The first, his death abolished death. His death abolished death. On the cross, Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sin. He, he fully absorbs the curse. He drinks fully the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. 
1 Corinthians 15, 26 and 54 to 56 says it this way. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when the imperishable puts on, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and mortality puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Christ has come to, to be our sacrifice for sin. He abolished death. Yes, in this life we will still grow old and die. But ultimately we have a life in us that will never die. We will never perish. Hebrews 2.14 puts it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why, why was there a baby in a manger at Christmas time? So he might die, and in dying, kill death. It's this amazing and profound truth. The baby in the manger came to die, and in dying, kill death. His death abolished death. That's, that's what Jesus' death on the cross does. He satisfies God's wrath for our sins and does away with the punishment of sin. But not only that, it says, but he brought to light life and immortality. Life and immortality. Jesus coming not only removes from us the penalty of our sin, but he comes with the principle of life that gives us life now. In John 10, Jesus says, the thief has come to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life to the abundantly or to the full. And so what the gospel offers us is not just for forgiveness, like I said earlier, but it offers us life now. Another way of putting it is the way that Paul does in, in 1 Timothy 4.8. For while godly training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds a promise of life for now and for the life to come. There's life now for those who would have it. Jesus promising those who drink of the water he gives will the well in them springing up to eternal life. There's life promised now that that life is knowing the Father. This, Jesus says, is eternal life, that they know the Father and they know the Son and they have fellowship with the Father and Son. And then there's an eternal life, an immortal life. Because this life can end through death, disease, sickness, but the life also that he brings is eternal and unending. So on the one hand, Jesus abolishes death. On the other hand, his life and death bring to light a new way of living and fellowship with the Father and an immortality and a life that will never end. All brought through the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. And finally, how has God saved and called us? This gospel, then, is announced to us in the gospel. That last little phrase there, brought to life, Life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's going to be the link to next week's passage because Paul's going to say, and it's that gospel that I was made a herald of. It's that gospel that I was commissioned to announce. But I want you to think about that. All of this has taken place. This, this choice of God in eternity past, this calling, the coming of the Son of God, his death on the cross abolishing death, his life bringing to light life and immortality, and all of this good news announced in the gospel. All of it announced in the gospel. 
working through the gospel. The gospel is deeper than we understand it. On the one hand, like I said, it's simple enough for a child to understand. But I just want to pause here and just, just again, announce that gospel. Make sure that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That gospel announces that we're sinners. That each and every one of us was headed, is headed towards death and destruction. And that God, for no reason other than his own overflowing mercy and loving kindness, sent his son. He didn't need to send his son. He wasn't obligated to send his son. No one twisted his arm. But of his own free choice, he sent his son. And he called us. And his son died for us and bore our sins on the cross. And three days later, he was raised again from the dead. And now an offer of pardon and forgiveness, an offer of, of power to become more holy and ultimately be with God is extended to all who will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him and believe. That message is announced in the gospel and it's announced over and over through all the world until the Lord returns. That's what Paul is passionate about. That's what Paul wants Timothy to continue doing. We'll see in 2 Timothy. And that is how God has chosen to save in one sense, our salvation was secured in eternity past when he chose us, and yet it pleased the Lord through the preaching of a foolish message to actually bring about our salvation. Message of a dying God, a crucified Messiah. And yet that message in it, it puts to shame the wisdom of men, for in it the righteousness of God is displayed. And Paul says he's not ashamed of it, and I'm not ashamed of it, and is my prayer that we would not be ashamed of it, that we would take courage in knowing what God has done for us and why he has done it and when he did it and how he did it so that we would take heart, we would be courageous, we would share in suffering. And, and I think it's fitting now, I'm going to call the worship team up for a final song, that we just never lose sight of that gospel, that we never grow bored with it, complacent with it, it is deeper than you know. It is wider than you know. It is more spectacular than you or I know. I think it's quite fitting that we are going to sing now the gospel song. So please stand and we will sing the gospel song. <laughs>